everybody, and welcome to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, this is episode 117, 118, 119, something like that of the podcast. So obviously not a new podcast anymore, but for those of you just tuning in for the first time, basically what, I, what we do here on this podcast is uh, I invite an author on to discuss a book of theirs that's been uh, newly published or recently published, and... Uh, you know, um, have a conversation about it, and hopefully at the end of the podcast, or you know, even in the middle of the podcast, if you get your druthers about you, you go ahead and purchase the book yourself and give it a read. So if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show, and also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Dr. Holger Affelbach. And Dr. Afflerbach is Professor of Modern European History at the University of Leeds, and his books include The Art of Defeat, A History of Surrender, The Unleashed Sea, uh, The History of the Atlantic, uh, The Triple Alliance, European Great Power and Alliance Politics Before World War I, and a biography of Prussian War Minister and Chief of General Staff, uh, Eric von Falkenhayn. Uh, lastly, he is the author of On a Knife Edge, How Germany Lost the First World War, which was originally published in Germany back in 2018, but was released in an English translation by Cambridge University Press last October. And that is the book we will be discussing today. So, uh, Dr. Offerbach, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. And I hope I didn't screw up the uh, titles of your book. I was uh, trying to translate them, uh, of the books. I was trying to translate them from the German, so I might have um, no. screwed up. Uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, no, Tim. All correct. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> oh, no problem. Okay, so, uh, you know, general first question, everybody that comes on here, um, you know, what made you want to write this book? What was what was the uh, genesis of it, uh, of the project? Well, um, it's um, the book did not come out of the blue because I um, researched in the past several um, topics which basically um, cried for being bound together into a complete um, history of Germany, of German strategy and politics during the First World War. It started with my PhD thesis. You mentioned it earlier on Erich von Falkenhayn, who was um, chief of staff of the German army during the First World War. Then um, I published a big collection of sources on Wilhelm II as Supreme Warlord during the First World War, um, which were newly discovered sources from the archives. So two of the adjutants of um, Wilhelm II wrote a diary of war letters, and I could go through the war practically day by day. And all that accumulated, and I thought uh, that probably a modern and unbiased history of German politics and strategy in the First World War uh, were necessary and overdue. This made me write the book. Gotcha. So, um, I know you obviously can't speak for all Germans, but how is the, how is the Great War, uh, what is the view of that today in, in Germany uh, in general? How is that viewed? Yeah, um, that is, of course, a very wide question indeed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I give my best. 
Um, the First World War is um, in was for a long time completely overshadowed by the Second World War, by the result of the Second World War, a National Socialism, Holocaust, and all that. Mm-hmm. And um, still, if we if we speak now about historiography and um, and trends in historiography. Um, um, watershed in in the, in in the public perception of the First World War was the so-called Fisher controversy, which started in the early 1960s. And uh, Hamburger Hamburg historian Fritz Fischer published a big book on uh, Germany's war aims, with the claim that Germany started the first was mainly responsible for the outbreak of the First World War, which caused an uproar and a very big controversy in Germany, and probably the biggest uh, histor- um, um, controversy among historians since 1945. Mm. And the reason for that was that in Germany there was a kind of agreement that all powers kind of were responsible for the outbreak of, of the First World War. Also, Germany was responsible, but not worse than the others. And suddenly, a historian said Germany was much more responsible. And, um, and this thesis was extremely contested. And um, there were years of heated debates. And then... At some point, um, of course, it slowed down a little bit, but um, Fritz Fischer and his idea that Germany was probably more responsible for the outbreak of of the First World War than other powers still was dominant. And uh, this is also what, for example, best-selling author Christopher Clark Mm -hmm. said in one of his uh, talks. He said that, probably what he calls Fisher light. <laughs> so uh, basically a slimmed down version of Fritz Fischer's view is still dominating historiography. And also his own book, The Sleepwalkers, Sleepwalkers yeah. was holding against yeah. that. So this is now, you know, um, of course, this is a very broad stroke uh, trying to, to bring some sense into that. If you ask now how important is the First World War in German historiography. It it had a lot of public interest around the centenary. There you could really see in 2014 up to 2018, there were a lot of publications. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. To steal a line from uh, the Duke of Wellington at the close of the the last uh, continental European war before the Great War breaks out. Uh, uh, <laughs> the Great War was a, uh, a near-run thing. Um, um, you could argue that both sides thought the war was up in the air for such a long time, or on a knife edge, as, you're, as the title of the book alludes to, that, uh, as you write, it's, quote, it's indispensable to understanding the increasing radicalization of the war, the insuperable obstacles in the way of a compromised peace, the harshness of the victors, and the stubborn unwillingness of the vanquished to accept the result. And so uh, the war itself, uh, uh, very, very, uh, like I said, very, very closely, um, it can go either way, it seems, <laughs> on any day of the war. And it and it is that way up until pretty much the 
until the uh, very end in 1918. Yeah. yeah. So um, let me um, let me underline what I don't say in the book. Yes. I don't make the claim that Germany could have won the First World War. So this is, uh, if I say on the knife edge and a uh, war could uh, go either way and so on, it um, sounds as if I argue that um, Germany um, nearly could have won the First World War. Mm. What I say is that in Europe we had a draw. Basically, the Germans made the initial offensive, the Schlieffenplan, it ran aground, and then the Allied counterattacked, and this did not move forward. And from 1914 um, practically to 1918, there was a stalemate. And either side was able to break the stalemate. And my claim is that um, the stalemate under normal circumstances should have resulted in a, in a draw, so in a, in a piece where either side had won, if the German leadership had not committed terrible mistakes. Mm. So terrible mistakes, of course, the biggest one is to not to try to prevent the war from happening, but this is a mistake all European powers made together. But also during the war, they made several mistakes. And the biggest uh, mistake, of course, was not to prevent that the United States of America entered the war, which in my eyes and in the eyes of probably everybody who, who knows a little bit about um, the subject was definitely the, the, uh, the thing which brought the decision. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a there's a very uh, big underestimation of the American effort to come uh, when the German uh, high command uh, essentially makes the decision to uh, return to unrestricted submarine warfare in 1917 and um, they basically thought that well even if the United States enters you know uh, militarily they're not going to be that big of a deal the, the you know the country's not really up to it uh, or the people aren't really up to it. It's you know they don't. The United States doesn't uh, have a history of getting involved in wars outside of uh, you know North America, et cetera, et cetera. And we really um, don't have too <laughs> too much to worry about about the American entry in the war, even if it happens, since they're since they were uh, practically. I mean, essentially saying, well, the uh, the United States is on the side of the of the Entente powers already anyway, so. Um, you know, so let's just make it official, essentially. Um, yes, of course, um, the the decision makers who assembled to discuss um, the declaration of unlimited submarine warfare, which at the end brought the United States into the war, were not eager to bring the americans in no so, but they were they were resigned to it if it had been i mean they thought the unrestricted warfare against the against britain unrestricted submarine warfare was so important that even if it brought the americans in uh it was worth a risk worth taking uh that is that is correct yeah true yeah 
Okay. And um, they, it was a kind of risk assessment, and they mm -hmm. said um, the situation um, in Europe is so critical. We um, we have somehow to try to to I will not say to win against the uh, the British, but uh, to make the British ready for compromise. And the only way we are able to do that and also to stop all this flow of material over the Atlantic Ocean is is an unlimited submarine warfare. Yeah. And we can uh, quote here also Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill said that uh, victory and defeat in the um, First World War were a question of a few weeks. And he mentioned this time span between um, the declaration of unlimited submarine warfare, which was on the 1st of February 1917, and the first Russian Revolution in mid-March 1917, mm -hmm. which of course changed um, the strategic picture of the war decisively. And um, Russia dropping out, if if they had known that for sure, um, it may be that uh, unlimited submarine warfare would never have de been declared. Right, right, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but headed back to the beginning, um, what was what was Germany's political objective uh, for the war, and uh, what what was the motivation of the German government in July and August, nineteen fourteen? Okay, that is um, an important question. So basically, why was Imperial Germany's government doing it. And um, my take on that is that um, the July crisis was a diplomatic maneuver which derailed. Mm -hmm. We'll say they did not plan for world war breaking out, but they um, planned for diplomatic maneuver to strengthen the only important ally left in Europe would say Austria-Hungary, and they thought that Austria-Hungary was completely undermined by um, nationalisms and also uh, by what the Serbs did, and so we have to help the Austrians to strengthen them. Mm -hmm. And they thought that uh, there's a certain risk that the Russians may intervene and the thing escalates, but probably not. And if I say probably not, there is a lot of evidence which um, which shows that the German leadership was not um, reflecting on war. For example, the Kaiser was <clears throat> in the decisive meetings with the Austro-Hungarians um, on the 5th of July 1914, and he spoke in most um, decisive terms about helping the Austrians and so on. And immediately afterwards, he went on leave. Well, say he went um, to the coast, uh, went on his yacht, and um, and went to Norway, like every year. So he went on his uh, Norway cruise. If you think a world war is coming, normally you stay at home. <laughs> normally and, cancel your vacation, right? <laughs> and and prepare that. And with the entire rest of German leadership, it's pretty much the same. Mm -hmm. General um, chief of staff. Um, Helmut von Moltke was in was in a spa to take care of his um, ailing health. Uh, um, Prussian Minister of War Falkenhayn went to the North Sea 
for holidays. And so all of them went and all of them, at least we know it for sure from Falkenhayn, thought that probably nothing will come out of it. The only one who stayed in Berlin or near Berlin was Reichskanzler, Chancellor von Bethmann-Holweg. He stayed there. And um, we know more or less or think that we more, uh, know more or less what he was thinking because he discussed the political situation with his aide, um, Kurt Rietzler, and Kurt Rietzler wrote, wrote a diary. And he said, well, it's maybe that a world war will come, but maybe not. You know, it was uh, was a back and forth. And if you look a little bit into the prehistory of the First World War, all the diplomatic maneuvers beforehand, something like in 1914 happened already during the Bosnian annexation crisis in 1908-1909. We'll say um, Austria-Hungary annexed Bosnia, Serbia was against that, Serbia was backed by Russia. And, and it ended with Russia backing down. And it was, you know, the same powers interested in the question, and it ended with Russia backing down. The situation in the meantime had changed because Russia had rearmed. They were very weak in 1909 because of the Russia-Japanese war. Mm -hmm. But still, this was only five years ago, and, and they repeated a pattern and probably thought, um, it's it's a risky move, but probably at the end of the day, the others will back down. And this is insofar important as, uh, as you know, if you plan a war, then you have also an objective. If you suddenly are in a war and you, you have no real objective because you did not plan that to happen, then you have to um, invent the objective afterwards. Mm -hmm. And this was the case with probably all the European powers and also with uh, with Germany. So they started to reflect on war aims only after the war had broken out. Yeah, uh, yeah. And the the German polity, the German populace at the, at the beginning of the war, um, they believe that this is a uh, an enforced conflict uh, that they're fighting a, a defensive war that they've been. Uh, dragged into with you know uh, with uh, Britain, <laughs> Britain sort of the puppet master pulling all the strings, um, but you know they um, uh, like I said they certainly uh, the German people uh, don't uh, feel that this is uh, um, a uh, you know a war for to establish. German hegemony over Europe or anything like that. They just, uh, for the most part, they think that they're they're fighting this just uh, <laughs> uh, defensively to uh, to save to save Germany. That was exactly what um, they said. You know, there were, of course, public declarations at the outbreak of the war, and the Kaiser himself said, "We are not driven by the lust of conquest." Mm -hmm. And um, there was a conviction that um, they were fighting a war of self-defense that was immensely important for um, for the country sticking together in the situation because we should not forget that the strongest party in Imperial Germany versus were the Social Democrats. Mm -hmm. 
So the Social Democrats were uh, in the last elections before 1914 and 1912. They they had become the strongest party uh, in the German parliament. So uh, the um, Social Democracy in Imperial Germany at this moment was much stronger than Social Democracy in Germany <laughs> is now. Yeah. So And you had to convince Social Democrats who were against the war that it was a national necessity to fight. And this was already the first major feast that the German government was able to convince the social democrats that it was necessary. And the only way to do that was to say this is a war of, of self-defense and that it was not our fault. Despite the fact that when Bethmann Hollweg gave the speech in early August 1914, observers um, noticed that when he spoke that um, our our conscience is clear, <laughs> yeah. that his voice <laughs> was, was breaking kind of. So basically, he knew, of course, that they had at least a part of the responsibility. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, if you could actually... Uh... Talk a little bit about uh, about the Kaiser, Kaiser Wilhelm II, and uh, his role in the German Empire. And uh, I just wanted to point out, um, I'm sure that most Americans don't know that the the German Empire was a federal a federal construction. You know, there were 25 different states. Uh, you know, there were uh, kingdoms of Bavaria and kingdom of Württemberg and Saxony and you know the Grand Duchy of Hesse and uh, Baden and etc. So uh, there are other German kings and uh, and dukes and <laughs> things like. That. But uh, I I know the sort of the um, uh, caricature of Wilhelm is sort of uh, at least here I think most people kind of consider him like a um, a dictator of sort of that, yeah. that uh, the the German Empire was a sort of an autocratic dictatorship, but that's not the case. No, that is definitely not the case. And um, uh, Wilhelm II was uh, was uh, was not Hitler, you know, so not yeah. at the top of a, of a monolithic structure. And uh, basically, uh, whatever he said was done. And uh, that is another topic in um, um, in my book. Mm -hmm. um, the the German decision-making machine, so to say, was extremely cumbersome. And um, you had not one center of making decisions, you had several centers of making decisions and they had kind of cooperate to get things done. And um, that was already in peacetime cumbersome and in, in in times of war it became really really complicated and it was a um, constant back and forth and for that reason I'm also not um, um, convinced about this idea that Germany during the First World War was a military dictatorship mm -hmm. and so that um, the show was run by uh, by the head of the army will say especially by Hindenburg and Ludendorff because also they had to find compromises with the other powers, decision-making centers, 
and one of the decision-making centers, which always became more important during the war, was the parliament. Mm-hmm. You know, during the war, there is a kind of perplexing um, development that the parliament becomes more important in the decision-making process, and you cannot leave them out. You have to keep them on board because in in, in war times, the inner unity is even more, much more important than in peace times. Mm-hmm. And, uh, for example, to keep the social democrats on board for the war effort, asked for compromises all the way. Yeah, yeah. So, right at the, um, again, as you mentioned, uh, the book really talks about how Germany um, lost the war, the decisions made to lose the war. And one of those decisions uh, comes right off the bat uh, with the invasion of Belgium, uh, which is uh, one of the major mistakes the Germans make in the war because, uh, first of all, it leads uh, the British Empire to enter the war. And then also uh, it's a diplomatic catastrophe and Germany loses uh, essentially the the public relations image in the war right off the bat, you know, the, the, loses the hearts and minds of the of the neutral world right off the bat with uh, the invasion of uh, little tiny Belgium. Um, absolutely true. That is, of course, uh, nothing where I can claim um, originality or ownership mm-hmm. because um, that was um, discussed for um, practically since it happened. And um, in in Imperial Germany, um, the military was able to push the invasion of Belgium through, despite the fact that the political consequences of that were were seen, but they thought it's in our case, um, a case of national self-defense. And for that reason, we have to break the rules. Mm -hmm. And they thought they get away with that internationally. I make a comparison with uh, with another neutral country which was occupied by Germany at the outbreak of war and which normally gets zero attention by historians because um, Belgium was not the only place. Luxembourg, Luxembourg yeah. was also yeah. overrun. And Luxembourg, a small country, um, made only nominal resistance. <coughs> so basically, uh, the Dutchess parked her car across the street to block German troops, and that was it. <laughs> so and, and they stayed in the country. And in the Belgian case, uh, optimistic German leadership, will say Bittmann Holweg, thought that... Um, the Belgian leadership will do something similar so that they will protest and then they will go from Brussels to Antwerp or so and then that um, Belgium and Germany will find a kind of compromise. And he was completely upset when when it became clear that Britain will enter the war and then a famous conversation with the British ambassador when he said the Belgian neutrality agreement is only a scrap of paper, which is not worth a fight between Germany and Britain and mm-hmm. so on and so on. And also another thing, if, 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 if the German government had been uh, sure that Britain will enter the war, they probably would have... Um, dealt with the July crisis completely differently. And this is something which some historians and politicians later on 
um, Satan blamed the British government for, that they did not make their decision clearer that they will enter the war if war breaks out on the side of, um, of France and Russia to deter the Germans from doing it. But um, again, how could Britain do that? Because the uh, decision to enter the war was extremely contested. Yeah. So it was, it was difficult. And, you know, there's always the danger of hindsight so mm -hmm. that people say, why didn't they do that and that and that? But they know everything and the people in the moment didn't. And um, everything was a little bit hazy and they had to act um, under time pressure and um, made terrible mistakes. Yeah, and at the same time, I think, um, I'm not sure if anyone uh, in the German general staff could have foresaw that uh, Britain, uh, you know, uh, would have... <laughs> Would have eventually gone to uh, compulsory compulsory military service and uh, a draft and drafted a you know massive, um, a gigantic, uh, basically continental army that uh, something that the the British had never mm -hmm. uh, really done uh, before you know it wasn't really the the British style or the or the British way of war to you know have massive armies on the, on the continent like that and uh you know i think uh you know probably if they would have foreseen that that would have you know given them even more pause i would, I would assume yeah of course britain um uh, introduced the draft in 1916 and uh, that was a, a bad surprise um, for the germans and it was anyway a bad surprise for the germans that the britain was um massively fighting this war because mm -hmm. there was a kind of national stereotype and the national stereotype against Britain was that Britain was um, always using continental uh, continental powers to fight their war mm -hmm. so they don't fight themselves they find others who fight on their behalf and um, this stereotype uh, was um, demolished very substantially during the war. Britain fought itself and massively. And um, um, if we speak, um, if I may come back to this Belgium thing. Sure. Because um, we, I, I can, if you look into the files and you try to reconstruct what the German decision makers may have thought when they did that, Still, the decision was catastrophically wrong, and uh, and you and also with hindsight we can say you could have done better. And um, the argument to say they could have done better is to compare this with France, because the French chief of staff Joseph Joffre asked in 1912 also for his government for the permission to invade Belgium in case of war, to be able to um, to come um, basically to attack the Germans from the rear. So the same idea like the Schlieffen plan. The Schlieffen plan wanted um, to attack the French from the rear because the French border itself was heavily fortified and they did not want to run against um, heavy fortifications. 
and the German border was also heavily fortified, and the, and the um, sort of French general staff said, let's let's go over Belgium, then we can catch them in the rear. Same idea like the Schlieffen plan, and the French government said clearly no. Mm-hmm. No. They said no, and this was uh, was immediately dropped, despite the fact that uh, the military advantages in the French and in the German case were pretty identical for was invading Belgium. Only in the German case, the military got away with it, and in the French case, not, which shows that um, there were serious deficiencies in in the German decision-making process, but also th- th- that is very well known. And already German historian uh, Gerhard Ritter had written about that already in the 1950s. So this is nothing new, but it is something we have to highlight because it is not a case of um, whitewashing German decision-making or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, so... Uh, well, the Germans do invade Belgium, and uh, the war goes very well for Germany initially, uh, you know, until the the German advance is famously stopped on the Marne in September 1914. And um, there are many historians who say that um, essentially once the Germans are stopped on the Marne in 1914, uh that's that's it. That that was their best chance to win the war. And uh, once they're stopped here, um, that's it. They can never really win the war in the West after that point. Um, what is your opinion on that? Well, I um, I tend to agree because um, I'm I'm not a historian who wants to say something contrarian only because it's different. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, also the mainstream is right, and the mainstream <laughs> said <laughs> that um, once uh, the German attack on um, run the ground, uh, there was very little chance to end the war quickly with a German victory. Very very little chance, um, not to say zero. And um, but the point is that probably uh, even if if the Man battle, which was a hotly debated topic in the interwar period and so on, even if um, the Germans had prevailed and not retreated, because the German retreat during the Man battle was a voluntary one, mm-hmm. and if they had continued, probably. Um, they could have continued to advance um, for another 50 or 60 kilometers, and then they would have run aground. That is basically uh, the opinion of um, all military historians who deal with this um, problem. And um, the reason for that is um, logistics, so that German logistics were completely overstretched. They needed railways to bring all their ammunition and uh, materials forward. And they were already during the Mount battle operating very distant from their last um, railway stations and mm-hmm. advancing further, especially because the Belgians had uh, destroyed um, parts of their railway system, which could not be uh, made usable um, by the Germans um, um, on, on short notice. So all that probably they would have run aground and um, further south. 
Of course, that would have been for France a disaster because already the parts of France which were occupied by Germany were a constant drain for the French. Mm-hmm. That they, uh, it is a heavily industrialized zone, and if the um, a very productive zone of your country is occupied by the enemy, this is definitely a disadvantage. And this disadvantage would have been bigger if Germany had conquered more of it. Sure. But this was not going to happen, and so after running aground at the Marne, probably there was little chance to win it. But, and this is now the, the core message of my book, there's a draw. The, and the draw means the Germans could not win and the Allies could not win either. So they were basically hanging in the balance. And that went on for a, for an awful long time. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, General Falkenhayn, uh, as you even said, basically uh, at a certain point says uh, the war should be uh, or essentially is going to be an attritional one. Uh, our, our best bet is just to, you know, hopefully bleed out the French and bleed out the British and get them to the the conference table to, to make peace. But there's, uh, and he's seen as kind of a defeatist <laughs> for expressing this opinion, but he, he, he basically, uh, to him, there's no way uh, for Germany to really, um, as you said, uh, win this war in the West at, after that point. Yeah, but not only in the West, also mm-hmm. in the East, because mm-hmm. Falkenhayn, had, um, as a chief of staff, uh, he was responsible for um, for all German fronts, sure. and he um, he already in November 1914 approached the Chancellor and said, um, "We cannot do it militarily. We we need a political way out of the war." And um, despite the fact that his uh, solutions, which he offered, were not very practical. So he said, let's try to to make a separate peace or with the Russians or with the French or better with both of them together. Mm -hmm. So um, this was not practical because the Allied powers had signed in um, September 1914 an agreement of not making a a separate peace. So Mm -hmm. um, it was very unlikely that uh, Germany could um, broker a separate peace with one of these powers. But at least bringing it on the table that that it is militarily not possible to win and uh, that we need a political solution was, um, was quite the right step forward, mm-hmm. we have to say with hindsight, and the political leadership should have embarked on that much more energetically than they did, because Reichskanzler von Bittmann-Holwig, instead of um, seeing the urgency of that, thought that Falkenhayn was militarily a loser and was reflecting on changing the chief of staff. It's <laughs> yeah. so basically hoping that somebody else can do it better. And in Germany, we had a certain, um, we had pretty many people in the foreign office as well as in the army who until 1916 thought that um, um, if Germany had good strategic leadership, they could win the war militarily. Mm-hmm. And only after 
1916, um, there is a growing mood of gloom and desperation, so they speak much less about winning, but of somehow getting out. Gotcha. So, uh, what was what was life like on uh, on the German home front in the in the first half of the war? Uh, you know, what was how did it impact uh, everyday life uh, in Germany from 1914-1916? So the home front um, in Germany uh, was also a very decisive argument in, um, in, in the entire question how the war may end. And um, the, the German home front had several massive problems. The first one was a lack of manpower. Because if you draft um, uh, several million people to, into the army, a drafted army, which of course grew over the war and normally had then a strength of six, seven um, million men at, at a given time. If you draft so many men, they leave vacancies. And um, a very significant vacancy was in agriculture. If you draft all the people who normally worked on the field, you, you should not be astonished if, um, if your agricultural um, productivity drops. Mm, sure. And that was exactly what happened. And uh, this was the Achilles heel of, of Germany during the First World War, that Germany already uh, before 1914 was a net importer of foodstuff. Especially, you know, the, the, the calculation is quite complicated because a lot of foodstuff was needed for, for, for animals or animal fodder. Sure. So the Germans were big meat eaters. And, um, and then they thought first, okay, when, uh, if we, for example, slaughter our animals and we don't need all the foodstuff and then maybe we are nearly in the balance. And they did that, and then they were lacking fertilizers. And then they could, of course, produce fertilizers with nitrogen and so on. But nitrogen is also needed something for um, producing ammunition and explosives. Sure. And um, and there was a constant stopgap procedure. They were always lacking something, and they tried to, um, um, to make ration cards and. Um, and they did so, and somehow at the beginning, even they were, uh, they had so much in storage in terms of food that they were baking cakes and sending them to their um, husbands and um, fathers and so on in the fields. And so um, the situation regarding foodstuff became critical in 1916. So there were. Initial shortages, you could feel it, of course, you know, the, the, the road was downwards from day one and you could feel it already in 1915, but it was not dramatic. In 1916, the picture changed and it changed especially because of the so-called turnip winter 1916-17 when um, because of a very bad um, harvest, which was uh, pretty much disastrous. Um, all over the northern hemisphere, but in Germany there was a very bad harvest, 
and um, in the winter of 16, 17, they were really um, very close to starvation with going down on the ration cards to um, a little bit more than 800 calories mm-hmm. a day, which is not sufficient. No. And for that reason, they started a very big black market. And without the black market, probably it would not have worked. And um, But instead of that, then they had this kind of command and control co- um, economy. And the control, command and control economy, which tried to administer the shortages, did not work. It was a little bit like in the late Soviet Union. You know, basically, you know, you have a control economy and the control economy is um, is not able to do the job but the job could not be done because there was not enough food. And all that was very bad, of course, for the German war effort. And a little bit of that, um, they blamed always the British blockade and saying the British blockade is responsible for all these shortages. But that is only a part of the problem and probably even a smaller part of the problem. Because um, the manpower shortage in Germany was one argument, and another one was that Germany was waging war against um, its uh, main foodstuff uh, deliverers. For example, Russia. You yeah. could not expect to make war with Russia, and Russia continues to deliver the stuff. <laughs> so a lot of that was um, was predictable. And that was also one of the reasons why Schlieffen had designed his concept for a short war, because he said a long war is a disaster. And he was right with that. Yeah, I like how you uh, demonstrated that in the book. There's the two uh, pictures, the Christmas cards, the uh, the Wagners. Um, yes. The, the first one in uh, 1915, you know, they're all, uh, <laughs> they're looking pretty happy. They got the map of the uh, in the background with the, the you know the uh, uh, where the front lines are on the map where the you know where the German army has advanced and uh, they have all the the foodstuffs laid out on the table you know as to demonstrate like you know what food shortage is like this is you know everything's fine it's cool and then um, <laughs> then two years later in 1917 uh, the same Christmas card in the uh, you know in the same in the same room of the house in front of the the Christmas tree. And this time, you know, in 1917, uh, the two of them are looking um, pretty glum. And there's this, uh, you, you can sense the lack of enthusiasm <laughs> for the war effort yeah, by 1917. You know, it is a shame that um, 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 uh, your audience cannot see the two photographs. Yeah. We have maybe to mention that the Wagner family they made selfies as Christmas cards. So they made a selfie of the couple. and yeah. They were um, pioneers. Yeah. Pardon? <laughs> I said they were pioneers in, in the yes, art of, uh, of taking selfies. <laughs> and so the Christmas selfie, and in 1917, they were standing there in their winter coats. Yes. We'll say it was inside so cold that they had to wear coats inside their home. And uh, zero enthusiasm. And basically, instead of writing um, 50 pages, you can pose these two photographs in the book and it immediately becomes evident what happened with the German home front. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so um, I said by 
autumn of 1916, there's this strong sense, um, at least among the general staff, maybe among the German people, that uh, uh, time is running out. You know, we've had 1916, we had the the German attack on Verdun, uh, which uh, doesn't go well for the Germans, and then there's the Allied Spring Offensive in 19, uh, just a bit later on, you know, the Battle of the Somme and all that. So it's an extremely uh, bloody year, but uh, by the end of 1916, there's really this sense of, um, you know, that this can't go on much longer. Uh, you know, it's, it's not getting any better for us the longer that this goes. And then by... Yep. And by the winter of 1917, the end of the year in 1917, the next year, uh, there's an, an increasing fear of the collapse of, of the entire social order, not just in, in Germany, but uh, I mean, there's this belief that the war was endangering the foundations of all of European civilization. Mm -hmm. True. And um, here we have to mention maybe also uh, another argument where in, in this book, because uh, instead of hanging on and trying to win, there's also an, um, another option, basically to conclude peace, to try to, to find a political solution, to, um, to find a compromise with the enemy. And um, Germany and Austria-Hungary tried in 1915 to broker a separate peace with, uh, with the instruments of secret diplomacy. You know, over Danish middlemen, they approached um, um, Tsar Nicholas uh, II and offered him a separate peace, which he rejected. And... They they tried that pretty hard, but it did not move forward. And in late 1916, the situation was indeed, as you described, so so tense mm -hmm. and um, and gloomy that they decided. So the um, uh, the ally, um, so Germany, Austria-Hungary, Bulgaria, and the Ottoman Empire decided together to make an official peace offer. And this peace offer was uh, made in December 1916 and immediately rejected by the Allied powers, immediately. And they rejected it because it came at a moment which was militarily not very favorable for, for the Allied because the central powers had conquered Bucharest. So Romania had mm -hmm. entered the war in August 1916 and this ended bad for Romania with Bucharest being occupied before Christmas. And uh, central powers thought that is a good moment so that um, um, enemy cannot interpret our peace offer as a sign of weakness. And so, but the Allied powers immediately rejected that. And then there's another story. Now it gets complicated because President Woodrow Wilson had his presidential re-election in 1916. And immediately after being re-elected, he made a, um, a kind of attempt to broker peace by himself. So he wanted to bring himself in as a as uh, as an intermediate to uh, to broker peace. All that came together 
and all that uh, came to nothing and uh, with a German declaration of unlimited submarine warfare on the 1st of February 1917 and all that is also linked mm -hmm. and the link is that the declaration of unlimited submarine warfare was a kind of result of 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 the peace offer being rejected We have a saying in German, und willst du nicht mein Bruder sein, so schlag ich dir den Schädel ein. This means, and if you don't want to be my brother, I smash your skull. <laughs> and so that basically um, we make a peace offer, and if you don't accept our peace offer, then we really um throw all weapons we have at you mm -hmm. and um uh, with all recklessness we will then fight on militarily and this was uh, the, exactly what happened in early 1917 it was stupid but uh, the sequence of events um was that one and um, there was a certain logic in that let's say it that way mm -hmm. so Uh, by 1918, um, I said the the Russian revolutions happened. Uh, Russia is where the Soviet Union at this point is is out of the war. Um, the Germans signed a you know very heavy-handed peace treaty with them at uh, Brest-Litovsk. Uh, they managed to uh, because of that their uh, most of their forces in the east. Are no longer tied up they can bring them over uh, to the Western Front and uh, they decide or uh, Ludendorff who is now the um, sort of co <laughs> co-commander-in-chief with Hindenburg but Hindenburg's more of a, uh, a figurehead uh, commander-in-chief Ludendorff's really the one uh, making most of the decisions Ludendorff decides um, to go on the offensive in 1918 now that they have uh, this sort of numerical advantage from moving these troops to the eastern uh, to the, from the eastern front to the west and uh, you know before the Americans can start uh, really bringing in or before the Americans have brought uh, most of the American expeditionary force over uh, they decide to go on the offensive and basically it's basically like a, a gamble uh, to just uh, you know a roll of the dice to go for it um, But was there any uh, real thought of just uh, uh, staying on the defensive in uh, the spring of 1918 and, and sort of, you know, trying to husband uh, the precious resource that was the manpower of the German army uh, and, uh, you know, just keep it intact as long as possible and, and just uh, uh, try that, uh, an, that attritional strategy? Um, Or was there really no um, no desire for that, or no thought that, or mm -hmm. again, that's a, you can't really win the war attritionally. Maybe maybe you can make them sue for peace, but this was uh, thought to be uh, going on the offensive that maybe they can perhaps win the war quickly before the Americans can mm -hmm. really get over. Obviously, the wrong decision, but uh, uh, yeah. was there any um, uh, pushback okay. on, on on the offensive idea? Well, um, I analyze that in um, my book also that um, if they're, you know, basically the, uh, the options, you know, there were military and political options or 
or uh, more precisely to ask that with a question mark, what were the political and military options for Germany after um, the war in the East was won? So we have um, to highlight that very strongly. Germany won the First World War in the East and Russia lost the First World War. Um, so what then? And uh, theoretically, you could say, is it maybe possible to broker peace um, with the Western enemies? The Western enemies were even invited to the peace conference in Brest-Litovsk to participate. And then if they had come, which was absolutely unlikely and uh, Germans and Austro-Hungarians did not believe they would come, but if they had come, then it would probably have been a very interesting question of a trade off. So Germany trades off the victory in the East for uh, for general peace all over Europe. That is the first question. But this is purely hypothetical because it did not happen. And the point staying on the defensive militarily would have made sense militarily because the German army was excellently equipped with artillery, with ammunition and so on because of the Hindenburg program. And they had an excellent fortified line, the Hindenburg line on the Western Mm -hmm. Front, which would have been an extremely tough nut to crack. So attacking there would have been a suicidal um, thing. But at the same moment, what's with the home front? The German home front was already a complete disaster with massive strikes and hundreds of thousands of people um, um, striking. Uh, the Austro-Hungarians were, were much worse, not to speak about the Bulgarians and the Ottomans. So basically, um, you could see that the home front does not allow it to, to go on indefinitely. And this was exactly the danger in all that. Um, you need a perspective. If your people are starving at home and um, the internal unity is cracking, you cannot say, well, we have to fight as long as it takes because Mm -hmm. people want to say when it's over and how can we decide, um, what can we do? And the German people, and this was not only Ludendorff, the German people were probably of the opinion that they could do it militarily because they said, look, we defeated Russia, the biggest enemy. And then we defeated in um, autumn 1917 the Italians at Caporetto. The Italian army was was uh, was nearly blown out of the war. The catastrophic defeat and the entire Italian front was, um, was hacked to pieces. And uh, the German public thought um, if we finally can focus our forces in the West, probably we can win there. It was not only Ludendorff. Mm -hmm. And probably the military planners were more skeptical than the German population. But of course, once the attack did not deliver in March 1918, the mood was immediately um, going down and at the end completely collapsing. And um, the 1918 thing was um, was a very, very difficult 
um, decision-making process because Germany was not militarily defeated and still the situation was kind of hopeless. Mm -hmm. And uh, what to do in this situation? This was is also, with hindsight, very difficult to to see how uh, what they should have done. Yeah. Because the enemy was also not um, ready to compromise on conditions which for Germany were the minimum. And the minimum was a status quo, to walk out with everything they had in 1914. They Not making gains, but also not making losses. And the peace was not available for this um, minimum goal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but uh, right after the... Uh, the German spring offensive, then the Allies go on the offensive, uh, and then the German, the collapse of the German army uh, happens, and it happens relatively quickly in the autumn. And uh, you know, by even by October 1918, uh, that the the, uh, the stab in the back legend is already uh, beginning to emerge. You know that oh the. Mm -hmm. uh, we didn't lose the war. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we didn't lose the war on the battlefield. It was lost, you know, on the home front by the uh, Spartacists, socialists, uh, and uh, defeatists on the home front, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but at the same time, as the army is collapsing, the political situation in Germany is collapsing, and, and it finally uh, dissolves into uh, chaos and and uh, revolution. And uh, the German public itself is sort of completely uh, unprepared uh, for defeat. That the that the the, uh, the, uh, the armistice, uh, uh, the collapse of the front, the armistice comes as a shock uh, to uh, most Germans because it was just. Um, <laughs> The picture painted on the war, obviously by the uh, German authorities, by the government, was uh, you know obviously a, a rosier picture than what was happening uh, in real life. Absolutely, that was the case. Uh, but uh, not only the German public and the German politicians were completely um, struck and so, so uh, unpleasantly surprised and overwhelmed. Um, uh, but also uh, the German general staff. Mm -hmm. There is a famous um, quote from the diary of uh, Colonel Thea who describes what happened when Ludendorff assembled the officers of the general staff and told them in late September 1918 how the situation is, <laughs> that uh, Germany had lost and uh, had now to ask for an armistice. And so basically the people were were standing there and they were crying and they were um, um, completely overwhelmed and unable to react properly, were completely emotional and with the German politicians exactly the same. Of course, some people saw it coming and these were the people who were fighting on the Western Front. <laughs> mm -hmm. They saw it and there were also some writings on the wall like um, in late September 1918, uh, the Allied were able to pierce the Hindenburg line. And then the game was up because if if Germany could not defend the most formidable obstacle on the Western Front, where else could they stop the enemy? And at the same moment, uh, the Bulgarians had given up. So basically, then the German front on the Balkan was now a big hole. 
and um, how to close this gap while you could not close the gap on the Western Front. So the game was definitely up mm. and it came at, as a bad surprise um, for, the, for the German public. But I would say the entire step in the back legend was also by large parts of the German population considered to be a legend. And um, the entire debate to make it fully understandable in the 1920s were also the big illusions about um, um, the armistice conditions. And the armistice conditions at the end, to make a long story short, was Germany stops fighting and gets a Wilson peace. That was basically the deal. Right. And we could say uh, the German, the, uh, the armistice was something like... Um, like a conditional surrender, you know, mm -hmm. the condition is Wilson peace, and then we stop fighting. And then in Versailles, they felt betrayed because the peace was not a Wilson peace, but it was a very different peace. And uh, this is also what Keynes criticized about the Versailles Treaty and so on. And that, this, f this feeling of being betrayed um, made the story so hopeless and um, created also this kind of revisionism in Germany so that across the political parties everybody wanted a revision of this uh, treaty and nobody really wanted um, that, this, um, that the peace treaty of Versailles remains the last word. Right. And that is also, you know, if, if, if a nation rejects an agreement practically unanimously, that is a real problem. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, we've already gone a little bit long, uh, but if you don't mind, just a couple more questions for you. Uh, okay. Yeah, sir. So, um, so what does Germany look like in at the end of the war? I mean, we've had the... I mean, obviously the empire sort of collapses. The Kaiser is forced to abdicate a couple of days before the armistice. Uh, all the German monarchies are dissolved. Um, you know, we have the Germans have over two million uh, <laughs> dead soldiers uh, from the war. I mean, practically every German household uh, either has a loved one uh, or know of a, a friend uh, who has been killed in the war. So. Um, what does Germany look like, uh, you know, going into 1919 and 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 into the future? Well, um, if we uh, if we uh, speak now about the the pressing point, which was uh, was a um, peace agreement, or we would say the peace treaty in Versailles, which Germany had to sign. Government resigned, and the, but then they finally signed it, and uh, this was at this moment also the best they could do because otherwise Germany probably would have been invaded mm -hmm. by Allied troops. This was obvious. If Germany had not signed it, um, situation would have become uh, even more catastrophic. But if we take the treaty, then we have the territorial losses partially in, in Polish-speaking territories, which were, were now a part of Poland, 
and then um, uh, the Danzig solution, so Poland needed a harbor, and so the German port city of Danzig became a free state to offer a harbor for Poland, and then they had to hand over territories to Denmark, to Belgium, and Alsace-Lorraine to France. I would say, the, was there revisionism regarding the territorial losses? Yes, but especially regarding the, um, uh, the borders in the east against Poland and the Danzig thing. Yes, also the Weimar Republic um, did not accept that. But uh, for example, Alsace Lorraine and so on, that was pretty much dropped and was not really an issue. Mm -hmm. And um, also, um, but the key point um, why the Versailles Treaty was so unpopular were, uh, was a reparation question. So the Allied powers had kind of, the Germans had made a, uh, um, an offer of a flat rate, a high sum to be paid, but uh, then the Allied powers had left that open and, um, and came up with astro astronomical figures which Germany never ever would have been able to pay. And so the, the idea was, well, until the 1980s, we have to pay for that. And this, of course, if, if you are in, in 1919 and you think that the next 60 years you were not coming back to your feet because you have to um, try to pay indemnities for the war, this kind of um, makes it impossible for you to agree on that. So that was, in my eyes, um, the key issue, that they really, really did not agree with the reparation thing. And then the German economics were anyway in disarray. There was an enormous inland debt because the entire uh, German war effort had been, or uh, the biggest part of the um, war effort had been paid with, um, with war bonds, not with taxation, with war bonds. And all these war bonds were, of course, an astronomical figure as well, but that was wiped out by the hyperinflation in 1923. But the hyperinflation in 1923 created then a, big feeling of frustration in vast parts of, of German society who had lost all their savings. Sure. And if the state does something like that to you, basically um, that they steal from the middle classes their savings, sometimes a lifetime savings, um, people are not um, easy to forgive that. Yeah. And that created also very, very, very bad mood. And um, all that was, of course, all linked with the First World War. And this was a kind of uh, the heritage of the First World War. Um, the Weimar Republic could really not properly deal with it because the problems, there was no solution for this problem. If you have such an astronomical debt and then also astronomical reparations, how you can um, how can you deal with that? It's impossible. Yeah, wasn't there? I could be wrong, but wasn't there a provision of the Versailles Treaty uh, that they basically made the Germans uh, take responsibility for 
starting the war itself, they had to uh, basically sign and say, yeah, uh, the war was our fault. Yes, uh, it was a famous war guilt clause, Article 231 of the Versailles Treaty, and uh, this means Germany and its allies uh, were responsible for the war and all, all the damages and so on, which was brought in as a kind of, I, I w would now, now say it's a lawyer's idea, you mm -hmm. know, um, a legal <laughs> idea. We claim um, Germany has to agree that Germany is responsible for the war. And for that reason, Germany is also responsible for the entire damage. Mm -hmm. And that becomes an enormous figure because then you have all the damages, for example, in northern France, all these devastated territories. But then you have, for example, also the pensions for all um, for all the wounded and and crippled soldiers and yeah, so sure. on and and so on. And uh, this becomes a, an enormous figure. And. Also, the, uh, the victorious societies were, were on their last leg as well, and they probably in 1980, late 1918 were also in the mood to say, well, the Germans uh, started that, the Germans lost, and now they have to pay for it. And so in late 1918, I think um, there was a mood all over Britain, France, and so on, let the Germans pay for it. And only with, uh, with the First World War getting a little bit in, in the past, you know, the, basically that emotions cooled down a little bit. They saw this is, uh, this is not, uh, first it is not feasible, they can't, and we will only poison their and our lives for, for the future if right. we don't compromise. And I would say in the 1920s, we see a lot of compromising regarding the Versailles Treaty on also on the side of the victorious powers. And that was also something like um, 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 central politician Matthias Erzberger had said about the um, Versailles Treaty. He said, let's sign it because we have no choice and we will revise that right. step by step. People will come to their senses and then we will find new agreements. Right. And unfortunately, it took too long because when the, um, finally the reparations were dropped, Hitler was already in power. Mm -hmm. So the wrong person got the benefit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think actually Britain just finally paid off its war debt to us from World War One just a, <laughs> like a couple <laughs> years ago. So, uh, yeah, so <laughs> these things have long lasting consequences. You know, they were. Uh, still paying off their war debt to us in the 21st century, but uh, from, you know, over 100 years ago. But uh, anyway, there's, uh, at the end of the book, you said uh, you have a quote that unleashing the war was more the responsibility of the central powers in Russia, uh, but its excessive length owed more to the Western powers in Italy. Uh, what, do you, what, do you, what do you mean by that? Why, uh, why do the Entente powers have uh, more to do with with the, uh, the length of the war? Because, um, let me reflect on how to say that as briefly as possible. Yeah, in sure. Germany, uh, uh, let's say it that way. In Germany, uh, you know, Germany is a shorthand because Germany was, uh, was a state or um, a federation with uh, um, around 65 million inhabitants. And you find in, in such a big 
um, society, all kinds of opinions. But there was um, um, a peace and a, a party which was reflecting on ending the war by compromise. And there was a war party which uh, said uh, the enemy is not ready to compromise. The only way out of the war is to win it militarily. Mm. And there were basically two camps. And um, which camp had the upper hand? This very much depended on the situation of the war and also on the enemy. For example, if you have such a situation... And if the enemy suddenly shows signs to um, to be ready to compromise, the peace party is immediately on top. If the enemy is absolutely uncompromising and is uh, rejecting all your peace offers, the, the war party is on top. Sure. So your internal situation to some extent is depending uh, on what the enemy does. And um, I would say that is probably um, something which you can find not only in this war, but in, mm-hmm. in many wars. And in the First World War, if you look in the over, uh, to the overall picture, it's pretty clear. The Central Powers made tons of unofficial peace offers over um, secret diplomacy and also several very open ones. Mm-hmm. I mentioned already the peace offer of December 1916 and then there was uh, uh, another peace declaration of the German Reichstag in July 1917 and then um, and the Allied powers knew that Germany was ready to compromise, but they wanted to win. And um, if we see that um, the Central Powers made a lot of peace offers and the Allied Powers zero, um, they basically, what they did is um, Woodrow Wilson came up uh, with his 14 points, which were then also the basis of the armistice in 1918. But that was already something which... um, probably only a vanquished could swallow and militarily vanquished could swallow and also Woodrow Wilson said I want to deal with Germany only after it is beaten so also he did not want to compromise with Germany once the United States were at war with them and that is why I say um, you know one side is more responsible for starting it and the other side is more responsible for, for, for its duration, for rejecting a compromise, also because they were of the opinion that at the end they can win. Right. And they were right with that. They won at the end. I did, don't say this was a, was a wrong calculation. I, I, what I say is only that the collateral damage was enormous. Sure. With the, I mean, if the war would have ended earlier, maybe... There's not a revolution in Russia, or even if there was, uh, maybe... That is exactly the point. Everybody speaks about Germany and revenge and revanchism in Germany, but um, uh, that events in Russia took that catastrophic turn and brought the communists to power, um, uh, created all the problems which we saw in the interwar period. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, well, uh, again, I appreciate you very much for staying on along with me. Just uh, one final question I ask uh, everybody that comes on the podcast, and uh, that is, 
you know, what would you like the audience to get out of this book, or, or what's the one thing you'd want uh, a reader to take away from it, having having read it? Okay, um, that is a book on the first world war, a very specific book, and I think also from our discussion it becomes clear this is a book which um, which goes also into the details of German decision-making. But there is also an overarching question in that, and that is the concept of military victory and what the hell comes out of it. And if um, it's not better to compromise on time to prevent the damages of the war, because the war um, occasionally um, creates bigger problems than it solves. All right. Gotcha. Okay, well, uh, before we go, is there uh, uh, anything else you want to plug? Any uh, social media stuff or any appearances anywhere that you want uh, people to know about or or uh, any projects, yeah. anything like that? No, I think we can leave it here. <laughs> All right, you got it. Okay, uh, again, the book is On a Knife Edge, How Germany Lost the First World War. Uh, the author is Dr. Holger, Holger Alfelbach. Uh, extremely, extremely interesting book if you are interested in history uh, of the Great War. I know um, uh, Great War is not as uh, a popular subject here as it is in Europe, just because we weren't really involved in it uh, that much uh, up until the very end. Uh, but but is... uh, the United States of America owe their uh, world power status to the First World War. Absolutely. And uh, the First World War is probably, uh, I think you could easily make the argument that it, it is the more impactful, uh, uh, it has the most consequences uh, or it has more consequences than uh, World War II and uh the way that history plays out um and uh but anyway uh it's a fascinating book look uh at the uh at the german uh side of the war the german political side the military side the uh, uh cultural and economic side and uh highly highly recommend it uh for everybody out there uh, make sure you go out and get a copy and give it a read so again the book is on a knife edge how germany lost the first world war and the author, Dr. Holger Alferbach. And Dr. Alferbach, thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast with me and staying a little bit long. And uh, thank you very much for uh, writing the book and uh, getting it out there so we can all uh, read it and, uh, and appreciate it. So uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Tim, for having me. Oh, no problem. And again, if you like this podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review and sharing with your friends. And if you uh, have any questions about the podcast uh, or any comments or any books you'd like to discuss with us on the podcast or any ideas for interviews or anything like that, you can reach out to me at uh, tbenson at heartland.org. That's T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And we do have our Twitter account for the podcast. You can reach out to us there too or for any more information or just uh, uh, general stuff about the show. Uh, you know, Feel free to give us a follow, send us a DM, all that stuff. Our Twitter handle is at illbooks, at I-L-L books. So make sure you check that out. And, yeah, that's pretty much it. So uh, thank you for listening, everyone. We'll see you guys next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom. Bye-bye.
Just a step cried the sad man Take a look down at the madman Theater kings on Silver wings fly beyond reason From the flight of the seagull Come the spread claws of the eagle Only fear breaks the silence As we all kneel, pray for guidance Feed the fun. 